that made it here. Although I just have to tell you, I am extremely disappointed in my fellow Nebraskans, my fellow Omahans, because I've always laughed at the people that we lived with in Virginia, where you know you got a half inch of snow, school was canceled. We would sled literally down the middle of the street. We lived next to a hill, and the street was our sledding hill because there wouldn't be a car out. They didn't know how to drive. You know, Georgianne went to TCU. My sister went to TCU uh, for a year and then transferred to KU. But anyway, uh, they had snow one time, and their sanding system was a guy on the back of a pickup truck with a shovel. And she said you'd walk four steps, and there'd be a clump of sand, and you'd walk four more steps. You know, these idiots don't know how to deal with it. Okay, I'm sorry. Today, it took me an hour to get here because these idiots didn't know how to deal with it. I'm really disappointed that, you know, the, everything was everywhere I went, it was a parking lot. I'm like, okay, who, who's the one who's from Florida that doesn't know how to drive in this? But, but you made it. Do I have what? No, not now. Uh, I have a driveway that does this. <laughs> it's like an uphill S. Uh, and the only time I ever had trouble was with the van when I wanted to go to Walmart when we already had eight inches of snow. So I didn't make it that time. But I now have all-wheel drive. It's Doubting Court that's the problem. And now that I have all-wheel drive, I can get up to my house. So, but thank you for asking. <laughs> okay, do you have any questions before we begin? No way. You're either A, assuming I'm going to just talk, teach about it anyway, or you're afraid to ask them, one or the other. Or you're smart. You are. You are, you are really getting smart. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with C. I'm going to go with Connie's answer. Um, well, then before we begin, Connie had a question last week about which I said, whoa, okay, who was that? <laughs> um, about which I said uh, the answer to that question requires information of which I'm not currently in possession, and uh, now I am. So uh, the question specifically, I believe, if I remember, was on uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, and it says, of the angels he says, and this is from Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And that is talking about the splendor of the angels, how majestic they are. But remember, the author's point is that Jesus is even more glorious. And in fact, the context of that Psalm 104 talks about God being the sustainer and creator of all things, even the angels. And so uh, Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus being the sustainer and creator of all things. And so the point that the author of Hebrews is making is, look, Jesus is so much greater than the angels. Even their glory, which is dwarfed uh, by his own, even their glory is a product of his creative hand. So I hope that answers that question better. That was fun looking that up, so thank you for asking that. See, it's good sometimes to not be able to answer a question. Um, well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for bringing uh, these ladies safely here today. And, and um, just pray that you would bless your word to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives today, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to give us a little look back at, uh, at Hebrews 1, because Hebrews 2 builds on that. And that's going to happen all throughout Hebrews. This is such a tightly woven argument and, and sermon that the author is making, that, that it, it's just, it's kind of like math. Each step builds on the next step. Or learning to read. Let me tell you, if you, you skip a step in teaching your kid to learn how to read, 
it's going to come back and bite you at some point. Just don't ask me how I know. But I was a homeschool mom, and trust me, if you say, ah, this doesn't matter, she doesn't need to know to do do, how to do this. Yes, yes, she does need to know how to do that. So it kind of builds each uh, point on the next one. So remember at the beginning of Hebrews 1, he begins, the author begins by saying, God has spoken in the past. And he says through the prophets, um, but he uses the word prophets to mean everything in the Old Testament. So prophets, patriarchs, and kings. He's spoken through signs and wonders, through everything recorded in the Old Testament. God has spoken in the past. And then he goes on and says, but in these last days, God has spoken through his son. Now, these last days is a term that would have the last days, not these last days, that's present tense. So he's saying now, in this time, these last days. The Jews would have known exactly what that meant because the concept of last days had always been that from the time of Messiah till the end of time would be the last days. So for a Christian then, and for our author, these last days began with the incarnation of Christ, who is Messiah and will end with his return. So we too are still in these last days where God has spoken by his son. Isn't just what Jesus said, it includes what he said, but it includes everything he said and everything he did. And then the author goes into this beautiful, majestic explanation of who Jesus is. Uh, And he tells us that, that Jesus is the heir of all things. He is the heir of the entire created order. Why is that? He is the heir of the entire created order because he is the one through whom all things were made. He is the agent of creation. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, of God's being. Jesus also is the one who sustains the universe. He is carrying the universe toward God's designed end. He is carrying it forward to God's designed end. The author also tells us that that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. And and to be at God's right hand uh, connotes honor and power and victory, all of which belong to Christ. Um, And then uh, the next thing he tells us is that, that Jesus is superior to the angels. He tells us not only of the splendor and glory of the angels and how much greater Jesus' splendor and glory is, but he also tells us that that, uh, Jesus is the unique son of God. Angels are servants. And he also tells us that the angels worship Jesus, which of course means that Jesus is superior. Uh, And then finally, he tells us that Jesus is not just the creator of the universe, but he will also be the terminator of the universe. So so he's given this, all of chapter one is this exposition. Remember, exposition is expounding on or explaining spiritual and scriptural truth. And so uh, Hebrews one is this, excuse me, exposition of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he uses scripture to back that up. Uh, But after this exposition of scripture, he turns in chapter 2, to exhortation. He is going to exhort his listeners. He is going to encourage them. He is going to encourage them and try to motivate them to do something. And he's going to tell them 
in fact, to pay careful attention. And this is what it says in the first four verses. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So in the Greek, actually, the first word of this section is therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, then it means for this reason, based on this, and you have to look back. And so therefore, he says, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So that what the author is saying is because God has spoken, and because Jesus is all those things that we've been told in chapter 1, he is exalted, he is creator, he is sustainer, he is terminator of the universe, he is the exact representation of God's being, uh, he, is the, he is the radiance of God's glory, all those things, we need to pay careful attention to his gospel, to the message of salvation, which we're going to learn in a minute was given first by Jesus. That's what he means when he says we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. That's what we've heard. The gospel message. And we need to pay careful attention to it. How much sense would it make to know all of who Jesus is, to hear this glorious, majestic passage on all of who Jesus is and all that he has done and know that he is, he is the unique spoken word. He is God's revelation to us. And then say, whatevs. I got more important things to think about. That makes no sense to walk away from that. And so that's what he's saying. Don't pass it by. Don't neglect it. Don't ignore it. This is the most important thing to consider. Pay careful attention to the gospel to who Jesus is, to what he has done, and especially what he has done on our behalf. Why? So we don't drift away. The image being used here is that of a ship or a boat maybe uh, drifting away, it's not tied up correctly, drifting away from its moorings. Or perhaps um, due to neglect, it, it misses the harbor and, and goes off course. The image I first thought of, and probably some of you did too, was the ship in the Caribbean, I think last year or whatever, where the, where the captain was not paying attention to the ship. Uh, he was paying attention to a good-looking woman, but not the ship. And the darn thing ran aground, and it was a disaster. People died because of his neglect. And, and that's the image, and that's, that's the passion with which our author is telling us, don't lose sight of the gospel. Pay attention, pay careful attention to the gospel because uh, this is a strong warning not to drift. Uh, and then in, in verses 2 and the first part of verse 3, uh, he gives us the motivation for paying attention. And he says this, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So uh, he is giving us the motivation, and that when he says the message given by angels, he means the law of Moses. Uh, 
there, is a, there was a rabbinic tradition based on several Old Testament passages, most especially Deuteronomy 32, that said that the angels were the, the mediators of that law. So if, if the message of angels, uh, if one disagree, disobeyed that, then you were punished for that. And then the, the so great a salvation, what he's talking about there is the gospel of Jesus, how God has spoken by his son. The, the tool, the, the literary tool that he is using here is, was very common in rabbinical teaching, and that is an argument from lesser to greater. And, and he'll, you'll see this a lot. You'll see arguments from lesser to greater in Hebrews. You'll also see arguments from greater to lesser. Very common in that day. And so what you're saying then is if this lesser thing is true, then how much more true must this greater thing be? Uh, and so, oh, whoa, that was me again. I better be careful looking down. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it was you? No, no. Oh. When you raised your arm. Oh. Oh, I got him with my arms. Sorry, you just got to put up with it. <laughs> so, if the, my, I had a class once that tried to get me to teach like this. It lasted like 30 seconds. I could not put three words together. Anyway, so if those who disobeyed the law given by angels were punished, and they were, then how much more severe will the punishment be for those who ignore the salvation that comes through Jesus, through God's Son, not through angels, but through God's Son, the salvation offered by Jesus Christ, who is far greater than the angels. Now, I want you to understand something. This is, this is conscious rejection. Make no mistake about it. He is not talking here about people who have never heard the gospel. He, and he is, I believe, talking about those who have heard the gospel and, and consciously rejected it. But I think even more what we have to notice is he says... Um, how shall we escape if we ignore? So he is talking about people who have come to know Christ and then ignore, which means uh, to, to um, apathetically, um, to, to what, what does it mean? Through apathy, to neglect through apathy. It means to neglect through apathy that salvation. How much more will those who neglect their faith through apathy be punished. He doesn't tell us what the punishment is. That really doesn't matter, does it? Do we need to know? Isn't this warning enough that, uh, that it is a dangerous thing to neglect our faith? Uh, years ago, I taught, uh, didn't teach, I, I helped lead an FCA at Miller North Go Mustangs and, um, with a man named Stan Parker, who's had a huge impact on my life. And when he would uh, talk to kids about their faith, especially those that he knew we're not really uh, striving hard after Jesus, he would say, so tell me, uh, in your faith, are you, like, let's imagine you're on a bicycle. Are you, like, pedaling hard after God, or are you coasting? Well, now, that's a really good analogy to give them, because coasting doesn't sound so bad, does it? I'm, I'm kind of I'm coasting. And then he'd say this, can you coast uphill? See, if we are not paying attention to our relationship to Jesus Christ, if we're not moving forward, we are moving backward. We are drifting from God. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about that message of salvation to which we are supposed to be paying attention. And he says this, This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it, God also testified to it by signs 
wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the focus of these verses, I want you to pay attention here to this because he's talking again about speaking and listening. This follows on the heels of God has spoken and this is what he has spoken, this message of salvation. And so we are to hear it and to listen to it. And this message was given by Jesus uh, through all that he said and did and then it was passed down to those who followed him who passed it down to others. And among those others that received the message from people who received it from Jesus was the author of Hebrews. And uh, probably most, if not all, of his listeners, his original listeners to this sermon. But then even beyond that, it says God has testified to this. That is a legal term that he is using there. And he's saying God has testified, God has given his divine guarantee and assurance of the truth of the gospel through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So from the incarnation, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus to Pentecost and beyond, God has testified miraculously to the identity and the work of his son. This is how George Guthrie puts it. He says, the language used here is legal, suggesting that God has entered the courtroom of history to corroborate the testimony of those who followed the Lord by proclaiming salvation. God has not simply spoken a word of confirmation, however, but has acted. So Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, uh, tells us the good news but it also tells us the bad news of the good news. The bad news of the good news is that we are sinners and uh, our sin separates us from God. Anyone who's had a child go through Awana or has gone through Awana themselves knows Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is that Jesus has already done everything necessary to pay for our sins and to reconcile sinful human beings to a holy God. However, God never winks at sin, and neither should we. When we drift, we sin. And actually, I think the opposite is maybe even more true. When we sin and don't deal with it, we drift. And sometimes I think we become calloused to our own sin. We think it's really not a big deal. It's just a little thing. And I can deal with this later. Or God doesn't really mind this little thing that I'm doing. That is spiritual apathy. That is neglect of our salvation through apathy. And a passage like this in Hebrews is intended to wake us up, to exhort us to pay attention, to not fall asleep on the gospel, to not ignore our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because sin never comes cheap. Someone pays a price. And Jesus ultimately paid that price. But ladies, our sin infects and affects Everyone around us. When we sin, you know how they call it, they call a um, victimless crime. 
I'm not sure there is such a thing. I don't think there's a victimless sin either because it has an impact on everyone around us. Just the other day, two of my three dear children were not happy with one another, and one of them, whom I shall not name, was short-tempered with the other. And I heard what here she said, and I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds just like me. Where did she learn that? <laughs> Sorry. Me, me, my sin, my sin. She learned from me. God does not wink at sin, and so neither should we. My sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin cost God the life of his son. My sin delights the enemy of my soul. How can I ever take such a thing lightly? But when I do, I am in danger of drifting through spiritual apathy will cause me to drift in my relationship with God. Well, we move on to uh, verses 5 through 9, which say this. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, um, we'll move on to this for now. Um, so, in these verses 5 through 9, the author is resuming the exposition that he started. He took a break. He exhorted us to pay attention. Now he's going back to the exposition uh, of chapter 1, that Jesus is superior to the angels. And to show you that, I want to I show you the last two verses of chapter 1, which say, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make the enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This idea of making Christ's enemies a footstool at his feet, that's from Psalm 110.1. And, and, and the vision there is of all things being in submission to, being subjected to Jesus. So now we move on. And is it not to angels that it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking but there is a place where he, someone has testified, so it's to Jesus that he has said this. What is man, or, or that he has subjected everything. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet, under Jesus' feet. So this is the submission of all things to Jesus, continuing on from chapter 1. The purpose of this passage is to shift, though, because chapter 1 was all about the exaltation of Jesus, all about how glorious he is. And the author is going to shift here from exaltation to incarnation. He who, ha who has been from all eternity, the exalted son, condescended to be born in a stable, to become incarnate in order that he might reconcile people to God. The author is wanting to show in these following passages Christ's solidarity with, Christ's identification with human beings. That he was fully divine, chapter 1. He is also fully human, 
chapter 2. But Psalm 8 is interesting, and this is an interesting interpretation of Psalm 8, because it was not originally seen as a messianic psalm. It was not seen as, as a prophecy of Messiah. But our author is definitely interpreting it that way. In fact, he's interpreting, interpreting it Christologically, which means that it is about Christ. It has to do with Christ. Originally, this was said to be spoken of human beings, that, that what, what, who am I that you're mindful of me, and yet you've made me a little lower than the angels? Uh, but this is actually talking also, and that doesn't mean that's not true. It just means that unbeknownst to the author of the psalm, he was talking about Jesus. Only God can do that. Uh, that, that, that Jesus was made a human like us. Uh, and, uh, and he was made a little lower than the angels. Now that's interesting because it, that can be interpreted, that word little, which is this word here, uh, brachy, I'm just going to say that's what that, how you say that. Um, that can mean like in position, so the angels are here and human beings are here, so it can be a position, but it can also mean for a little amount of time. And that fits our context better. Because the author isn't really interested in how high are the angels, how low are the human beings, how high are the angels, how low was Jesus when he was on earth. But he is interested in saying, look, the exalted son, for a little time, for his time on earth, was lower than the angels. He was a human being just like us. Um, so during that brief time that Jesus walked the earth, he was fully human and therefore lower than the angels. However, he was then exalted and glorified and crowned with glory and honor. And everything, including his enemies, were placed under his feet, his footstool. Can you see how this all fits together? How brilliant this is. But then he goes on to tell us what we don't see at present. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This, this passage is talking about what we, what we often call the now and the not yet. And you might look at Psalm 110 and see that it says you will place my enemies under, you know, you, you will place his enemies under his feet. And then we look at Psalm 8, and, it, and it's past tense. It's, this has already been done. So which is it? Has, has everything been subjugated, subjugated to Christ, or has it not? And I can imagine those living in persecution at that time, or even in this day, would look at that and go, so hey, if everything's been subjected to Jesus, why am I going through this? Isn't he in charge? Uh, and it's a good question. The point that the author is trying, uh, the, the point that the author is trying to clarify is this very thing. And, and the truth is that the sun's rule over the universe is already a reality. That reality, however, must be confessed by faith until we see the full impact at the end of the age. We live in the now. And the not yet is true, but it hasn't been completed. Jesus is king of the universe. Um, he, that has been inaugurated, but it won't be completed until he returns. However, what we do see gives us hope. And the author tells us what we do see is Jesus. Exalted and glorified. We who trust in Christ recognize 
the truth of who he is, that he is exalted and that he will one day return to make every wrong right. That is our source of hope, especially in the middle of trial. The purpose of the incarnation of Jesus was that he became a man so that he might taste death for us, uh, so that he might take the punishment for our sin, so that we might be reconciled to God. He had to become a man to save men, to save human beings. But he had to be a perfect man. He had to be fully divine to save sinful men, to save sinful human beings. Now, there is sort of the elephant in the room in this passage of the problem of evil. Because you might be looking at this and saying, yeah, yeah, Amy, I get all that, but why does God often remain silent? Why do some people die and some people live? Why, why does sometimes he works the miraculous, intervenes with the mirac miraculous, and other times he seems to be absent? That's a deep question, and it requires way more time than we have today. But I'd like you to consider just one aspect of that question, and that's this concept of the in-between time. We live in the in-between time, and during this in-between time between Jesus' incarnation and his return, there is suffering. There is evil rampant on this earth. However, there is also purpose for this in-between time because God desires for as many to come to salvation as possible. This is how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here's the truth, ladies. This in-between time does include suffering and pain, but we will not always live in the in-between time. A day is coming when God will wipe every tear from our eyes and he will make right every wrong. This is how Dr. Guthrie puts it. No. This is how Dr. Guthrie puts it. The problem of evil for Christian lies not in God's abilities, nor even in our perception of his will and timing, but in our perception of Jesus. As a pilot in a dense fog keeps on course by looking to the instruments, Jesus provides a reference point from which to assess the greater realities of any given situation. We need to see Jesus. Ladies, I am exactly one month away from my 52nd birthday. And to some of you, that sounds really old. And maybe to a few of you, it sounds young. Either way, I got to tell you something. I was in my 20s like a week and a half ago. And because I, w I know I was in my 20s a week and a half ago, I also know that I will be on my deathbed, even if I live to be a very old woman, like the day after tomorrow. It goes so fast. And then, then, there will be no more pain or crying or suffering because the old things have passed away. We will not always live in the in-between time. Therefore, when we are in the midst of the pain and suffering of this world, our eyes should not be 
on that pain and suffering, but rather on him who tasted death so that we might one day live and reign with him. Our eyes should not be on this in-between time, which is a blip on the screen of life, but on eternity with him. Amen? So then he moves in uh, and, and talks about the appropriateness of the incarnation. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. First, the first thing you need to understand when, when it talks about Jesus' suffering and death being appropriate, that the idea of a crucified Savior was scandalous in the first century. In fact, anyone who was, who was crucified was considered cursed by God. There's no way a Savior could do that because he's cursed by God. How do you have a cursed Savior? There's no such thing as a cursed Savior. That's the way people would have looked at it. Crucifixion was a horrific death that was designed by the Romans to be the worst possible form of death. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. That's how bad it was. And yet, we are told here that it was fitting, that it was appropriate, that it was even the proper thing for God to do. And in fact, it was the only possible solution to our problem of sin. Remember in the garden, Jesus said, if there's any other way. There wasn't. There isn't. It is the only possible answer to our problem of sin. And he calls the, Jesus the author of our salvation, that God should make the author of our salvation. Um, and, and that means more than just he's the one that started it. He's the one that affected it. Uh, that word could mean that he's our, or could also mean or does mean that he's our champion, that he's our hero, that he's our rescuer. The picture here is more than someone who just needs a little help. It's someone who is completely incapable of saving herself, and God, through Jesus, rescues us from our plight. But then it says this weird thing, that he should be made perfect through suffering. How much sense does that make? Wasn't Jesus perfect already? Hasn't he always been perfect? Yes, that is true. The word that is used there, and I tell you this because it's going to be used again, and you're going to be asked about it in the study, is the word teleos, which actually be, means to be made complete uh, or to be made whole or to be adequate. In fact, in the ancient word, this world, this word was sometimes used for death the completion of life. So in Hebrews then, the author uses this word, and he uses it a number of times, to mean a completing a course or completing God's plan. So here what the author is saying is that Jesus was completely obedient in his suffering. And therefore, he completed the mission for which he was sent bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He fulfilled the task completely, perfectly. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He did it all. And then he goes on to speak more about Christ's solidarity with us. He says, both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, 
are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, and the children God has given me. So now again in his exposition, he goes back to the Old Testament. And he is going to give proof of Jesus' solidarity with his identification with human beings by using Old Testament prophecy. And basically what he is saying is God is our father. He is Christ's father. And therefore, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now in verse 12, the author quotes Psalm 22, 22. And the thing that's important about that is you've all, you already know what's in Psalm 22. Did I have you read it? Even though I didn't have you read it, you know uh, what's in there. Because that is the psalm where the whole first, 20, first, 20, first, first 21 verses are a prophecy of Jesus' death on the cross. Where the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says that he'd be pierced. It says that none of his bones would be broken. Uh, and so it, it, it's, it's this graphic portrayal of Jesus. Even though the psalmist didn't know, that's what he was doing. And then in Psalm 22, or in Psalm 22, 22, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And so he turns to place his trust in God, and that's Jesus speaking. Uh, and he's saying, these are my brothers and sisters. Um, that is his identification with us. So how does this show identification with us? First, he calls us his brothers and his sisters, of course. Um, we are family. And then secondly, he says, in the midst of the congregation, that word for congregation is ecclesia, and you may have heard that before because that was the name that was used for the church. So in the midst of the body of believers, in the midst of those who are part of me, in the midst of those for whom I came to this earth, I will sing your praises. So he is identifying himself with us, and he still uh, is with us through the Holy Spirit. John 1 says uh, that he came and made his dwelling, the word made his dwelling among us. And that's very much the picture we have here. Then in verse 13, uh, that is a quote from Isaiah 8, 17b and 18. And the background on that is fascinating and we don't have time for it. But again, he speaks of a family rela relationship. And when it says, I put my trust in him, that is Jesus speaking. Jesus is saying, I put my trust in God. And what that means is that I put my trust in God and that trust has been vindicated. God has made good on that trust. And because we are Jesus' brothers and sisters, our trust in God is not misplaced. Our trust, no matter what we experience on this earth, will be vindicated by God. Uh, and then in verses 14 through 16, he gives the, the reasons for the incarnation. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds pow the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. I love 
where it says he helps, it's not angels, he helps. That word for helps is literally he takes hold of us. And the image being shown here is Jesus grabbing hold on us and carrying us to glory. Beautiful, beautiful word picture being given there. So here is Jesus' task. His task is, was to defeat the devil and to break the stranglehold he had on human beings to destroy both death and the fear of death. But how was death destroyed and the devil defeated? It was, de it was done by Jesus' death. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, but the author mostly has his death in view here. The devil was defeated, death was defeated, and we no longer need to fear death. There was only one way for this to be accomplished. Since death was the prescription for victory in this case, the only way the son could accomplish the needed task was to die. And the only way to die was to become human. This, for our author, is the logic of the incarnation. And it tells us here that we are free then from the fear of death. I'll talk about that in just a second. So then in verses 17 and 18, the author says, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, previously, the author was talking about why Jesus was qualified to be our savior, to help us. These verses tell us he is completely able to help us. He could be qualified and be incapable of it, but he is not. He is completely qualified and completely able to help us because he fully shares in our humanity. He understands. He has been there and done that. We're suffering. He suffered. We face death. He faced death. We're tempted, he was tempted. The author is going to go on to tell us, but that he was without sin. He fully shares in our humanity. There's a transition being made here that will make more sense to you later. He calls Jesus our great high priest. Trust me, you're going to hear that again and again and again in Hebrews. He's going to talk about what that means, that Jesus is our great high priest. Um, so here's in summation what he's saying. The Son took on human flesh for specific reasons to give us help, indeed to rescue us from our sin, to destroy the devil, to free us from the fear of death, to make us holy through the forgiveness of our sins. And only a Savior who was both fully God and fully human, would have been both qualified and able to do these things. Since we could not save ourselves, he did not save himself from the worst of human experiences. The limitless Lord of the universe took on limitations in order to free us from ours. And nowhere are our limitations more clearly recognized than in the face of death. It is so comforting to me to know that Jesus didn't just defeat death. He defeated the fear of death. He released us from that. 
The great theologian Woody Allen <laughs> once said, that was tongue firmly planted in cheek, it's not that I'm afraid to die, it's just I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and I think fear of death is pretty universal. We fear a lot of things about death, don't we? We fear the process of dying. We fear the state of being dead. What happens then? Exactly what happens. We fear a loss of control. I'm, I'm uh, the caregiver for my mother-in-law now. And overnight, she went from being completely independent to being very, very, very dependent. Um, and what a, what a horrible change to have to go through. We fear that happening to us. Uh, we fear separation from loved ones. We fear just the unfamiliarity. It's something we've never experienced of death. But what Hebrews 2 tells us is that for the believer, these things are turned on their head. There is a sense of the known mixed with the unknown. We can know what God tells us about death to be true. And it isn't even so much what we know about death through scripture, it's who we know. Our guide, our champion, who has already tasted death on our behalf. He is our rescuer, even as we face our own death. We don't need to fear separation from our believing loved ones. All over scripture, it talks about all believers, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping before the throne of God. And thirdly, ladies, I hope we realize that we're not really in control anyway. That would be an illusion. That would be an illusion I like to believe fairly often. But we're not in control. Um, and and we, we have turned the control over of our lives to Jesus. We've even turned over control over the death of our lives to Jesus. And honestly, that's the only safe place for our control anyway, is in the hands of Jesus. I have to tell you that the, the, I don't really relish the thought of death uh, very often. I try not to think of it, actually. But I, I do want to end with two thoughts for you. The first is this, that the longer I live and the older I get, I realize more and more that this world is not my home. I don't belong here. And that deepens my longing for my true home, my eternal home in heaven. And second, because we have an eternal home, we have a very real hope. It's not some fancy, I hope I go to heaven. It's a real, true hope that was purchased by our Savior. His death has defeated death, and the devil is destroyed. As Jesus said to Mary, who was at that point suffer, uh, suffering the grief of the death of her brother, who Jesus then raised, but Jesus said this to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you defeated the devil, that you defeated death, and we need not fear it. Yes, Father, 
we know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and whoever lives and believes in him will never die. Father, we believe that. Help our unbelief. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. <laughs>